Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. As I studied this passage, I was thinking about how I wanted to, to teach it and how I wanted to present it to you. And I began to just kind of look at the life of Isaac. And, and I began to look at the things Isaac faced. Because if you remember the big picture context, last week we talked about Sarah and Abraham dying. As a matter of fact, the first part of chapter 25 describes Abraham's death, or it describes that he died and that he was buried. Uh, And then the narrative begins with Isaac and talks about his life. So it's interesting interesting to see what Isaac faces uh, after the death of his parents. And it got me to thinking, you know, our children, our grandchildren, they're going to face some things too. Maybe when we're around, maybe when we're no longer around. And so knowing they're going to face the things, some of the same things Isaac faces in this passage, uh, how can we prepare them for what's coming? If we know they're going to face some things, how can we get them ready for that? And so I want to talk about preparing our children and, 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 and also look at the overall uh, big picture context of this scripture. But if you look there in your notes, the, the question that I want to answer is how do we prepare our children, or in your case, maybe grandchildren, how do we prepare our children to walk by faith. How do we do that? And here's the answer. They want to unpack this answer for the rest of our time together. You've got to know what they will face and prepare them accordingly. You've got to know what they will face and prepare them accordingly. You heard the phrase, knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. I like to see the origin of quotes a lot of times. I thought, who said knowing is half the battle? And so I looked it up, and the best I could find is it's a quote from the cartoon G.I. Joe back in the 80s. So I don't know if that encourages you or not, but uh, yo, Joe, all right. But, but hey, G.I. Joe got it right, right? Knowing is half the battle. If you know what's coming, if you know what your uh, children, grandchildren are going to face, what they're going to be up against, what the spiritual challenges are, then you can be intentional about preparing them for those moments. And so we're going to learn some things just by looking at the things that Isaac faced in his life. So let me give you uh, six, six thoughts about knowing what our children are going to face. Number one, they will have to learn to live by faith. They will have to learn to live by faith. All in all, Abraham exhibited great faith. God made these extraordinary promises to Abraham of giving him a son, and then through that son giving him descendants that would uh, be formed into a great nation, and then he would give them a land to live in, and through that nation he would bless all the peoples on the face of the earth because he would send the Messiah through that nation who would die for the sins of the world. So he makes these promises to Abraham, but the fulfillment of these promises in his life was delayed. Uh, years went by before he actually had a son with his wife, Sarah, the way God had promised. And so Abraham heard God's word, believed God's promise, but then he had to adjust his life accordingly. He had to walk by faith. He's a great example of what it looks like to walk by faith. But it's interesting to note that Isaac is faced with some of the same challenges after Abraham dies. And Abraham's faith doesn't do Isaac any good. Isaac's got to have his own faith, right? He can't live off of dad's faith. He's got to have his own faith. So we need to understand that just like Isaac, our children are going to have to learn to live by faith. We need to teach them this right now. So look what it says in 
Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And so... Abraham had to wait for the birth of Isaac. Now, Isaac's going to wait, wait for the birth of a son between he and Rebekah. Because if God doesn't give him the son, the promise is over. No, no nation of descendants, no, no nation of Israel. I mean, it, it would stop with him. The promises of God would fail in his life. And so he's just like Abraham. If, if this promise to Abraham was going to come to fulfillment, if God was going to form a great nation and give them a land to live in, all of that then Isaac and Rebekah had to have a son too. And here's the problem. Rebekah's unable to conceive. And so we see him here, knowing the promises of God, and then looking at the reality of his circumstances. And at this point, he has to decide, am I going to trust God? Am I going to live by faith? If you look there in your notes, Isaac and Rebekah faced The same test of faith that Abraham and Sarah faced. The same test. Abraham and Sarah waiting for a son. Isaac and Rebekah were waiting for a son. So just like Abraham and Sarah, they had to learn to cling to God's promises. They had to learn to cling to God's promises, just like Abraham did. And they had to learn where to go with their struggles. What does Isaac do when uh, Rebekah is unable to conceive? Well, look what it says in verse 21. Isaac, it says, prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And so he knows to go to God with this concern. I believe he learned that from Abraham. When you have struggles, when you are wavering in unbelief, when you are overwhelmed by the reality of your circumstances, you need to go to God. Uh, Isaac goes to God, and, and Rebekah goes to God. Look what it says in verse 22. The children, so God gave them plural here, twins, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she realizes something's not normal about the, the, the twins in her womb. There's a struggle going on, and it just doesn't feel right, and she's perplexed by this. So look what she does with her perplexity. It says... In verse 22, so she went to what? What? Inquire of the Lord. She would ask God about it, which is always a good idea. If you find yourself wavering in unbelief, if you find yourself struggling, if you find yourself perplexed, go ask God about it. It's amazing what can happen if you just go to him. And so he, she, she goes to God and and asked, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So he's saying to her, This struggle in your womb is, is foreshadowing that there will be struggle between the descendants of both of the sons in your womb. And God speaks to this prophetically in the passage. But uh, Isaac and Rebekah had to learn where to go with their struggles, and we find them going to the Lord. Very encouraging. And so we need to teach our kids. You're going to have to learn to walk by faith. Sometimes life is not going to make sense. Can I get an amen on that? 
Sometimes life is not going to make sense. And all you're going to have is the Word of God, the promises of God. You've got to cling to those promises. You've got to get into the Word. You've got to know the Word. You've got to know who God is and what God has said. And you've got to take your concerns. You've got to take your struggles. You've got to take your perplexities to God. Now, consequently, the best way to teach this is to model it. Right? Model it. I mean, it's one thing to say, take your concerns to God. It's another thing for them to see mom and dad take the family by the hand and go to God with a real concern. Model it. That's what uh, Abraham and Sarah did for Isaac and Rebekah. And so we need to train our children to know God's word and to trust God in every circumstance. I love Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, where it says, In all your ways, acknowledge him. Don't lean on your understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, uh, acknowledge him. So we need to teach our children in all of their ways to acknowledge him. Trust God in every circumstance because your kids are going to have to learn, your grandkids are going to have to learn to walk by faith, to honor the Lord. They're going to have to learn to walk by faith. And so we need to teach them that now and model that for them now. Isaac and Rebecca had good models in Abraham and Sarah. Number two, not perfect models, we'll get to that in a minute, but good models. Number two, they will have to deal with conflict. I mean, you can just take it to the bank, just like you deal with conflict, your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, as they grow up and live in this world, they're going to have to deal with conflict. And we see this in the life of Isaac, Rebecca, and uh, the, the children, Jacob and Esau. Look what it says in chapter 25, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Can't imagine that moment of knowing there was a twin in there. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which best we can tell Esau means something uh, like uh, hairy, um, Edom, which the nation that came from Esau, it carries the idea of red, so that's where you get the idea of, of, of red hair. He was a hairy, red baby. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. The, the name Jacob means heel grabber. That's what it literally means. And he was grabbing his heel, which again foreshadowed ongoing conflict, and they called Jacob heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And so we see that coming out of, uh, of the womb, as they're being delivered, there's this conflict. Uh, Esau comes first, he's the firstborn, but Jacob's grabbing his heel, which is exactly what their life would look like as they grew up. Exactly what it would look like. Gordon Wenham says this, Here the second twin is seen trying desperately to catch up with the first. The struggle in the womb is obviously going to continue outside. The pattern for the rest of the story is set. All right, so they struggle in the womb, they come out struggling, and they're going to keep on struggling. All right, there's going to be a lot of conflict between Jacob and Esau. And, and they would need to know how to navigate that conflict. They, don't, they didn't always do it well, but the conflict was going to happen. And look what it says down in chapter 26, verse 12. Chapter 26, verse 12. We're going to fast forward in the narrative a bit. This is Isaac sowing in the land of Abimelech. There's a great famine in the land, so he goes to Abimelech in the area of the Philistines 
to survive. It says, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the, the name of the, of the well Esek, because they contended with him. The word Esek means contention. Then they dug another well, and they guarded over, they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. Sitna means enmity or enemies. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, uh, which means broad places or roominess for the Lord. Now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So you see him dealing with just conflict. He has all of these holdings and he can't find a place where the herdsmen aren't quarreling with his herdsmen, just like Abraham and Lot's herdsmen quarreled. And so he seemed just dealing with life, dealing with conflict. Now here's the principle I want you to get. In a world cursed by sin, and I might add filled with sinners like us, conflict is inevitable. It's not whether or not you're going to come into conflict with others. It's how you handle the conflict. In a world cursed by sin, in a world full of sinners, conflict is inevitable. And so if we know that our children are going to face conflict, there are going to be times when they're mistreated, right? There may be times when they are tempted to mistreat others. If we know that's coming, how do we prepare them? Our children need to be armed with self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 says that a man without self-control is like a city without walls, wide open to destruction. Our children need to be armed with self-control. Gentleness. Proverbs 15, 1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath. Someone comes at you, they're angry, they, they, they're they're loud, they're vociferous, they, they want their way, and they come at you with all of this anger pent up, and you answer with gentleness, and it just deflates them. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And, and they need to learn, they need to be armed with a willingness to forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to forgive each other just as Christ forgave us. So we always are live with, a, with an awareness that we've been forgiven greatly. And because God has forgiven us of all of our stuff, we should be willing to extend forgiveness. It's, it's, it's incredible, is it not, that we who have received this incredible forgiveness sometimes hold on to forgiveness and don't extend it to others. Isn't that incredible that we do that? But if we realize we've been forgiven greatly, then we will extend that forgiveness to others. We need to teach our kids to to have self-control, teach them to be gentle, teach them to, to, to be willing to forgive if they're going to navigate this world of sure conflict. They'll have to deal with conflict. Here's the third thing that our, our children will have to deal with. They will need the love of their mother and father. They will need the love of their mother and father. 
Look what it says back in chapter 25, verse 27. This is very interesting. And again, I told you, the patriarchs, they have some high moments, but they have some low moments as well. And there was some major dysfunction in the families of the patriarchs. And we're just kind of getting into it right now. But look what it says in verse, um, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved who? Esau, because he ate of his game. I thought, always oh, so thought that was funny. He liked Esau because he brought him good food, all right? But Rebekah loved who? Jacob. Now, isn't it interesting that it says one parent loved one, one parent loved the other? Now, I'm sure that, that both parents loved both children to a degree, but the way they interacted, it was clear that Jacob was favored by Rebekah and Esau was favored by Isaac. It's pretty clear. That's what the Bible said. Isaac loved uh, Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. And I believe this set them up for unnecessary conflict in their relationship. And we're going to see it play out in the coming weeks. We're going to see how this favoritism really caused problems in this family. You see, favoritism produces emotional and relational turmoil in a family. Favoritism produces emotional and relational turmoil in a family. And, and, and children need to understand that, that, that dad loves them and that mom loves them too because children need a love from a mom and a dad because there's different types of love, right? The way a dad loves, the way a mom loves is different. And, but they need both to be, to be well-adjusted and, and to be ready to, to face all that life is going to bring their direction. And... and also, this is not just for when they're in their home. I believe we should, we should seek to put away favoritism when our kids are young in our home, but we should also avoid favoritism when they get older. And we should love them uh, both. Uh, uh, mom and dad should, should show equal love and affection to their children. And that's in your notes. Our children need equal attention and affection. Our children need equal attention and affection. So I would say to you, or let me anticipate a question. Wait, I, ha- I have a, a son or a grandson or a daughter or a granddaughter, and their interests are just not my interests. Um, I, just, I just, you know, we don't, I, I like doing this, they like doing that. I don't really care what they do. Well, learn to do what they do. Just make their interests your interests, all right? If, if, if you have a, a, a son that uh, is on the cross-country team and likes to run, go run a mile with them, Right? You say, that's extreme, that's extreme. And the reason I use that example, because of the movie Courageous. How many of you seen the movie Courageous? Is the movie Courageous? And in that movie Courageous, the, 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 the father was having a really hard time relating to his son. Uh, but he noticed that, that the son liked to run. And so the daddy started running with him. Just, I'm going to spend time with you, whatever, I'm going to run. So they, they would run together just to spend time together. And so learn your children, study your children, your grandchildren, know what makes them tick, and then just immerse yourself in their world, whatever it is, 
and just make their hobbies, their your hobbies, and so that they know that they have your attention and they know you have your affection. If they have the love of a mom and a dad, a grandma and a grandpa, they will be more well-adjusted and ready for what life is going to bring their direction. Because we see the dysfunction here that this causes. It co- it, I'm telling you, we're going to see it unfold. It causes dysfunction. So ask God for the grace, because this is not easy. This is not easy. Ask God for the grace to show your family equal attention and equal affection because they need to know that mom loves them. They need to know that dad loves them. They need both. Isaac and, I'm sorry, uh, Jacob and Esau didn't get the same equal attention and affection and it caused conflict down the road. Not only conflict between Jacob and Esau, but conflict between mom and dad. We'll get to that in a little bit. By the way, this is not the only story of favoritism that causes problems. Can you think of another story where favoritism caused a problem in the Bible? Joseph, right? He was the youngest, and what did his dad give him as a gift? Coat of many colors. And here Joseph comes walking up with his you know, coat of many colors, and other brothers see it, and, and they are so jealous of their dad's attention to their youngest brother, they plan to kill him until one brother says, wait, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and that's what they do. And, and God used it, his providence. We'll get to that story uh, later. But it's amazing how the favoritism caused uh, this type of violent reaction from the other brothers. Don't think that... That, that, that your kids aren't watching you, that our kids aren't watching us to see how we relate and that we are showing uh, equal affection and equal love to all of our children. I just tell you, as my family's growing, it's, get, it gets, it's challenging, right? I, I have a hard time just knowing where all my kids are, all right? Four kids, I'm like, where, where'd everybody go? Uh, but, but, but God gives us the grace to do that. And so uh, our children are going to need, here's what I know, they're going to need the love of their mother and their father. So, so do that. Do that. Oh, by the way, a little helpful hint. I heard this from a, from a, uh, a pastor that I, he has a blog that I read. Um, he, he did this with his children, and, and we've started it with our children. It's challenging uh, just because of time and busyness and all of that, but, but he would allow, uh, he had three children, he would allow one child per, uh, per night to stay up 30 minutes longer than the rest of the children. So everybody had to go to bed except one, and it was their night, all right? So they got to stay 30 minutes longer with mom and dad, and it was intentional time. They'd read Bible together or just read a book together or maybe just watch a show together if they wanted something to do or just talk about the day, talk about how school was going. And, and so once a week, every child was going to get 30 minutes of just mom and dad, uh, just them, no other siblings around, and they would have that focused time with their parents. And so I said, that's a really neat idea because we struggle w- with trying to you know, show our children affection and really talk to them and hear about their life and what's going on. And, and so we've incorporated that. you know. Uh, and so now they're asking, is it my night tonight? Is, is, is tonight the night I get to stay up 30 minutes longer? Uh, is it, you know, and, and they, of course, then it becomes conflict over whose night it is. But we, we worked through that. Um, and, 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 but, but it's been good, and we just started it, but just, just kind of just time, just together, talking and hearing their heart. Uh, we can pray over them during that time. There's so many things, you can, so many ways you could use that time, and it's simple, uh, but it, 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 I thought it was a great idea. So, again, I don't take credit for it. I just, I just copied what I heard, and uh, we've tried to incorporate it in our home. So they will need that from mom and dad. Number four, our children 
will be tempted by worldliness. Our children will be tempted by worldliness. Look what it says at the end of chapter 25. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, remember he's a good cook. He was at home. Esau brought the food, Jacob did the cooking. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. He'd been hunting. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which has the idea of red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. You're the firstborn, you get these these special privileges of the firstborn. I want that birthright if you want this stew. Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau, watch this, despised his birthright. That position of privilege was no big deal. He despised his birthright. You see, what happened here is Esau let his worldly appetite... Take priority over God's blessing for the firstborn. Esau let his worldly appetite take priority over God's blessing for the firstborn. What he wanted, don't miss this, what he wanted at that moment was more important than the things of God. What he wanted, he had to have now. And that was more important than the things of God. You say, wait, how how are you extrapolating all this from this this passage. Well, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews gives us a little bit of commentary. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. New Testament book of Hebrews. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Interesting words here. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like who? Who's his example of worldliness? Esau is. And look what he says. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so the writer of Hebrews highlights this act of Esau as an example of worldliness. He's saying, don't be unholy, don't be immoral like Esau was when he sold the birthright. And then look what it says in the next verse. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so he wanted, he wanted to get his, his birthright back, but he was unable to. It was too late because he made a foolish decision driven by his appetites. And over in Philippians chapter 3, it speaks of enemies of the cross near the end of that chapter. And it describes what enemies of the cross are all about. And it says that their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. That doesn't mean that, it's not just speaking of physical eating. It means that their appetite for things things is what drives them. Their appetite for stuff, their appetite for fulfillment and satisfaction from everything and everyone other than God is what drives enemies of the cross. And 
And Esau here is an example of this. What he wanted was more important than the things of God. And all of us in this room have to make the decision. What's going to take precedent in our life? What we want, what glitters and shines from from the world or is what God wants going to be most important in my life? And your children are going to have to make the same decision. We must teach our children that the things of this world destroy and do not satisfy. I was taking my dad to the airport on Monday and, and dad listens to Oldie Goldie's. And uh, we were listening to it. There's an oldie goldie station. We were listening to it. And uh, I guess Rolling Stones came on singing, I can't get no satisfaction. They tried, didn't they? Rolling Stones tried to get satisfaction. I mean, they looked for it everywhere. You know, women, drugs, you know, power, prestige, money, fame. I mean, they, they looked for satisfaction in, everywhere. But that song's autobiographical. They couldn't get it. They couldn't find it. Because they were looking for satisfaction in all of the wrong places. And we need to help our, our children, grandchildren understand that the world simply does not deliver on its promise. The world de- de- promises satisfaction. The world promises happiness, but it never comes through. It never comes through. That's why John writes this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world... If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, stuff, materialism, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so we've got to be proactive in modeling and teaching, don't love the world. Don't buy into the lie that if you get a certain thing, if you acquire a certain position, if you do this or do that, or, or buy this or buy that, then you'll be happy. That is a lie straight from hell. Stuff does not satisfy. Prestige, prominence, acclaim, applause does not satisfy. Listen, there's only one who can satisfy the deepest desire of your soul, and that's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one that can deliver on his promise to give you abundant life. And that, listen, that's just not theory, that's testimony, because Jesus has given me abundant life. And I know that Jesus is better than any stuff that I have or desire. And so... We need to teach our children this lesson. I like this quote from John Bunyan. What God says is best, is best, though all men in the world are against it. In other words, we need to teach our children that, listen, even if everyone else says, even if the majority says this is acceptable behavior or this is good or this will bring you happiness, doesn't matter. What matters is what God says, right? That's how we defend and prepare against worldliness. Teach them what God says. Here's a fifth thing, and this is where it gets really personal for us in this room, okay? We're going to step on each other's toes for just a minute. Number five, your children, your grandchildren, they will follow in your footsteps. Scary thought, isn't it? They will follow. Follow in your footsteps. 
Now, back in chapter 26, that's going to mean a couple things. First of all, it's going to mean they will be influenced by your sins. It's interesting as we've seen this controversy going on with Adrian Peterson, plays for the Minnesota Vikings, and the injuries that his son sustained with a whipping and... Uh, it was extreme, and people are talking about all of that. Um, but but a lot of thing, a lot of um, emphasis has come from this conversation. in Our culture is this: we are prone to discipline the way we were disciplined, and so we're going to we're going to discipline the same way. And that's what Adrian Peterson said. He said, "Well, that's how my mom used to discipline me, so I just do what mom used to do." All right, and and that's how that's how that's how all of us are prone, not just in areas of discipline, but in every area. We're prone to default to the way we saw it lived out in the home. Right? Right or wrong? Some people call this generational uh, curses. That you see families that the descendants are dealing with the same stuff over and over and over again. As you see successive generations, the same sins keep occurring because the, the different generations are just living out what they've seen. And that's our default. That's our default. Even the negative things that we see in our home, we default to those things unless the power of God helps us go in a new direction. Now, that means that your children, this is scary, okay? My children will be influenced by our sins. Now, look what it says in chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there's a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in the land, in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring. I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Now fast forward to verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Now, where did he learn that from? <laughs> Going into a foreign land with a pretty wife and fearing for his own life, and so he lies and says, this woman is my sister. Where did he learn that from? Abraham did it twice. Twice. Same exact thing. And so what Isaac's doing here, listen, is he's, he's uh, learning from Abraham's playbook. He's just doing what dad did. And he, again, does not trust God here, just like Abraham didn't trust God, and does the wrong thing. Look what it says in verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So there's something in the way they were laughing. I don't know if they were laughing and, you know, embracing. I don't know what was going on there, but it, he, he knew there's more than just brother and sister, okay? So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? When the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And so God takes care of it, just like he did with Abraham. But notice, Isaac does the same exact thing, commits the same exact sin. Now listen, 
our children, our grandchildren, successive generations will have the default button of doing things the way we did things, even if the way we did things was wrong. So you say, well, how do I stop that? <laughs> I don't want them doing what I, you know, I don't want them imitating my mess-ups. How do I stop that? Here's how you do it. You may want to jot this down. This isn't in your notes. When we sin, we have the opportunity to model repentance. In other words, it's not whether or not you're going to sin. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? You're going to do something wrong in your home and your kids are going to see it. No one knows your imperfections better than your kids, correct? And so they're going to see you sin. So when they see you sin, let them see you repent. Model repentance for them so that when they sin, they know what to do with that sin. They know to repent. Model that for your kids. When we sin, and this is so hard, it's hard for me, it's hard for you. When we sin, it's best to go to our kids and say, Daddy blew it. Shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have spoken to you that way. Shouldn't have spoken to your sibling this way. Shouldn't have, you know, whatever. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's a humbling thing to tell your kids you were wrong and to admit your failure and your sin. But when you do that, you are doing your kids a world of good because you're teaching them how to deal with sin. You repent of your sin. You get right with God. That's how you deal with it, right? You don't let it fester and just hang around and become a, a, a spiritual cancer in your life. You, you, you deal with it. You, you repent and, and get it out of your life and ask God to help you go in a new direction. So when we sin, we should model repentance and we should admit it and ask for their forgiveness. That will go a long, long ways towards your children's spiritual formation. But here's the good news. Not only are our children influenced by our sins, they will also be influenced by our godliness. You have potential to influence them for good, right? Our godliness. Look what it says down in chapter 26, verse 23. Isaac is dwelling in the land. God is blessing him and his holdings. From there it says, he went up to Beersheba from the well of Rehoboth. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am uh, the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Where did Isaac learn to, to dig an altar, to build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord? Where did he learn that from? You read Genesis, Abraham's doing it all the time. Every time Abraham stops somewhere, he builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. I would submit to you tonight that not only did Isaac learn some sins from Abraham's playbook, but he also learned some godly behavior from Abraham too. Isn't that encouraging? So we have the potential to influence them with godly behavior. Our lives have tremendous potential, tremendous potential to influence our descendants for the glory of God. So just be cognizant. Are my loved ones seeing godly behavior modeled? Listen, your kids, 
ever catch you praying? Do they ever walk in a room and you're just there with the Word of God open, just, just reading God's Word? Your, your iPhone's in another room, TV's off, it's just you and Jesus. Do they ever catch you doing that? Do they ever see you praying for someone that's hurting or ministering to someone that's hurting? Do they, do they see you speaking good words about Jesus to someone that needs to hear about Jesus? Do they see this godly behavior? Because if they're going to learn it, they've got to learn it from you. It's one of the reasons God gave us the home. So generations could grow up learning what it means to walk with God. And so ask God for strength, ask God for wisdom, and say, God, allow me to model and teach godly behavior for my kids. So that instead of generational curses in my family, there will be generational blessings because they're following my example of walking with Jesus. They will follow in your footsteps, so make sure your footsteps are going in the right direction. Amen? Amen on that? That's a weak amen. amen. Let's try it again. They will, they will follow in your footsteps, so make sure your footsteps are going in the right direction. Amen. amen. Now, let's finish with this. And, and, and again, I've kind of gone, I'm looking at some examples from, from Isaac's life to, to make these points, but I want to get back to the main point of the text, okay? What's, what's, what's ultimately going on here. We've got to know what our kids will face and prepare them accordingly. They will have to learn to live by faith. They will have to deal with conflict. They will need the love of their mother and father. They will be tempted by worldliness. They will follow in your footsteps, but six, they will need a Savior. They will need a Savior. Look what it says in chapter 26, verse 4. God comes to Isaac reiterates the promises, the covenant he made with Abraham. He says, I will multiply your offspring, 26 verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So in your offspring, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to have children. Uh, your children will have children. And, and through that nation that I formed, the nation of Israel, I will bless all the nations on the face of the earth, which that promise was fulfilled in Christ because Jesus Christ came to the Israel, Israelite people and he came to this earth to die for the sins of the world. And because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, if anybody from any tribe, any tongue, any ethnicity, if anybody places their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they are blessed with salvation. So through Abraham's descendants, blessing comes to the whole world. And we know it's going to come to the whole world because the Bible says in Revelation that when we're gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, there will be people there, representatives from every tribe, every tongue, that have been blessed with the salvation that came through the Messiah that came through the Jewish people. And so, Isaac reiter- is, uh, God reiterates this promise to Isaac. You see, this family drama, this is what I want you to get. I, want you, I don't want you to miss the big picture of this passage and of all the Bible. This family drama takes place against the larger backdrop of God's plan to send a Savior for the world. So yeah, there's all this family drama happening, but God's doing something here. God is going to to watch over Isaac and and through Jacob give Jacob sons and through his sons build a great nation and one day send a Messiah named Jesus Christ. God is at work here. And listen, he's at work to save. 
He's, he's redeeming right here. He's, 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 he's unfolding his plan of redemption for you and for me. You see, Jesus is the ultimate and the only answer for our dysfunction and our separation from God. He's the ultimate and only answer for our dysfunction and our separation from God. And he wanted to remember, hey, Isaac, I'm doing something big here. I'm sending someone that will bless all the peoples of the earth. I'm sending a, a, a redeemer. That's what I'm doing here. That's important because Abraham needed a redeemer. Isaac needed a redeemer. You and I need a redeemer. Our kids and grandkids need a redeemer. Right? And Jesus is the only redeemer, the only hope for humanity. And so, just some thoughts. I just thought it was interesting to see Isaac living life after Abraham's death and just seeing the things he encountered. And it just reminded me that, that, that when my kids leave my home, when I'm no longer around, they're going to face some things too. And, and I want to be proactive in preparing them for what is sure to confront them.